Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for coming out to Skylight Books this fine Tuesday evening. This Tuesday, right? Um, before we get started with the, uh, the event at hand, I wanted to let you know a couple of things. Um, one, we have recently launched a new membership program, and you can find out details about it at the front counter. Uh, should you decide to join it, it's much like any membership program you've heard about. Uh, one of the perks is that you get 20% off all of our event books for the month. So if you decided to join tonight, you could get Hector book for 20% off uh, and there's a handful of other perks that you would uh, would get as well so I encourage you if you're interested to check that out uh, we've also got a lot of other great events coming up this month is chock full both sides of the flyer this time we've got those up at the counter as well um, one week from tonight we're gonna have Luis J Rodriguez who you may remember from always running uh, and we've also got next week on Thursday Jeffrey Eugenides who's a Pulitzer Prize winning novelist of Middlesex so we've actually got uh, a handful of Pulitzer Prize winners this week and next, which is pretty exciting for us here at Skylight. So I encourage you to check out uh, the October events, pick up a flyer, enjoy. Uh, and then this fine night, uh, I'm sure that you know what you're here for, but I'm going to do a little intro of Mr. Hector Tobar. Uh, he has written... Um, one other novel before, about six years ago, I hear, um, and is also an LA Times columnist. He won a Pulitzer Prize many years back for his coverage of the LA riots. Um, he has written many pieces, one of which I think it came out earlier this year. It was called something about how to be a true Angelino, uh, and and mentioned a few pointers of you know how you know that you've you've been here for a long time. Uh, and and one of my favorite lines from that piece was that we know that ours is a flawed paradise. He writes, um, and you know he just has a way of talking about Los Angeles that's really wonderful. Uh, and I would argue that another way that you know that someone is a true Angelino is the fact that they know that. Skylight Books used to be Chatterton's, uh, and Mr. Tobar used to shop here when it was Chatterton's, which was 20 years ago, uh, and it was kind of an earlier incarnation of the bookstore in the same space. So it's kind of cool to have that sense of continuity here. So we're really glad that he's uh, here doing an event with us tonight. Uh, he also recently has uh, been on NPR and has is, uh, has talked gave, gave a list of some of his favorite Los Angeles novels, many of which are our favorites here at Skylight Books as well. Uh, he mentions Ask the Dust, which I'm sure many of you have read. It's our number one best-selling fiction title of all time. Uh, so Hector loves Ask the Dust. We uh, love Ask the Dust. So just another reason why we're very excited to have him. Uh, so without further ado, uh, I'd like you to join me in welcoming Hector Tobar. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you everyone for coming um, on this really beautiful autumn night. Um, this is a, a very special event for me and for my family because I've been um, working on this book um, off and on for uh, almost 16 years. And in fact, uh, the original idea for this book, the original idea that I had that I would try to write fiction was when I lived in this neighborhood before I got married to my wife, Virginia Espino, who's pointing a camera over at me right now in the back. And I used to live down the street here uh, over by Sunset Junction, and this was my neighborhood bookstore. And I'd come here, it was the early 1990s, and I had this idea that I'd write fiction, and then Virginia and I both quit our jobs, and we went to graduate school, and I got an MFA in fiction. And um, in the, I wrote one novel, uh, The Tattooed Soldier, that came out in 98, and I had an idea for a second novel. And the second novel, I um, started, uh, I remember the, idea, the moment I got the idea for it was in 1994, uh, 95. And it was when Prop 187 was going on. And um, I had this idea, and I wrote this novel. And I finished the first draft of it on the day that my son Dante was born. And Dante's over there now, and he's now 15 years old. <laughs> and uh, I, I reworked that draft, and I sent it to my agent. And he was a new, he inherited me from my other agent who had retired. And he was young and he sent out this novel, which maybe he shouldn't have sent out. And it was rejected by like 24, 25 publishers. In fact, he told me he didn't want to even show me the rejection letters because they would probably bring down my spirit. And I remember the day that in which we sort of, I realized that I was not going to sell the original incarnation of this novel, which was called Farewell California, because it was 1999, 2000. And I remember I was really devastated. And I remember my son, Diego, was a baby. And he was still in a baby carrier. And now he's over there. And he's 12, and next to his brother. And after that, I wrote another book. I decided I wanted to keep I love writing. I'm obsessed with writing. And uh, as my wife knows, has had to live with my obsession for 18, 19 years now. And, uh, and still, we're still together, which is kind of miraculous, uh, given uh, what a what a hard thing it is to live with a writer. But I did keep on, I kept on writing. I wrote a nonfiction book called Translation Nation, and I finished that in 2005, and I went on a little tour with that, and I, read, I met a lot of people who had read my first novel, The Tattooed Soldier, and I decided I should write a novel for them. And so I went back to the first version of this book called Farewell, California, which was about 250 pages, and I looked through it, and I looked through the first 10 or 15 pages, and I realized immediately why it had not sold, and that was because it sucked. <laughs> It was a really bad novel. And, um, and so I looked at this and I thought, I, have, I, 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 I think I can do this. I think I'm older now. I have kids. I wrote this novel. It was about a woman in a home with this family and these kids. And I, when I started it, I didn't really have kids. And by that time, I was already a veteran. Virginia and I, my wife, were veterans in raising children. And so I started rewriting this novel in 2005. Um, when we were leaving, we, we had moved to Buenos Aires, Argentina. Where, and I remember that because uh, that time, my little girl, Luna, was one. And she's back there now, and she's seven now. So my family really doesn't remember a time, none of them do, really, when I wasn't working on this book in one way or another. And so it's very special uh, to be here. And I have to say, this is really um, a great honor to be published, and especially to be pu published by this house, Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. And it's, it's really the pinnacle of my career. However, um, being able to stand here before you with my new book and its beautiful glossy cover is an honor, but it, it's nothing compared to the glory of writing a novel um, with your family.
and having them as alongside you, that process, that every morning getting up and having them alongside you, it was like the most beautiful thing I ever lived in my life uh, as, a, as a writer. And so I'm thankful to them uh, for uh, seeing me through it and seeing me through the end. And the other thing I thought I should say is that the coolest thing about all of that, all those years, is not once did any member of that family, when I told them I was writing a book, ever, ever say to me, yeah, right, you're writing a book. They always had faith in me that I would write, see it through to the end, and that's what you need to be successful in the craziest thing any, any writer can do, which is to write a novel. So I wrote this novel. It's called The Barbarian Nurseries, and it's about uh, a nanny, a housekeeper. And it begins um, with uh, this opening uh, section, which I'm going to read, and it was the first image that popped into my head when I decided I would write this novel, and I will read. Scott Torres was upset because the lawnmower wouldn't start. Because no matter how hard he pulled at the cord, it didn't begin to roar. His exertions produced only a brief flutter of the engine, like the cough of a sick child, and then an extended silence filled by the buzzing of two dragonflies doing figure eights over the uncut St. Augustine grass. The lawn was precocious, ambitious, eight inches tall. And for the moment, it could entertain jungle dreams of one day shading the house from the sun. The blades would rise as long as he pulled at the cord and the lawnmower coughed. He gripped the cord's plastic handle, paused, and leaned forward to gather breath and momentum and tried again. The lawnmower roared for an instant, spit a clump of grass from its jutting black mouth, and stopped. Scott stepped back from the machine and gave it the angry, everyman stare of fatherliness frustrated, of a handyman being unhandy. Araceli, his Mexican maid, watched him from the kitchen window, her hands covered with a bu white bubble skin of dishwater. She wondered if she should tell El Señor Scott the secret that made the lawnmower roar. When you turned a knob on the side of the engine, it made starting the machine as easy as pulling a loose thread from a sweater. She had seen Pepe play with this knob several times. But no, she decided to let El Señor Scott figure it out himself. Scott let Pepe and his chunky gardener's muscle go, muscles go. She would allow this struggle with a machine to be her boss's punishment. So that's Araceli, and that's the way I first imagined her as sort of the sarcastic, um, you know, witness to our American failings. And um, so I spent a lot of time thinking about Araceli, and uh, the big event in her house uh, is these birthday parties. And so they have these birthday parties, and Araceli is the person uh, greeting people at the door. And um, so the door, this is the little boy's eighth birthday party. And like a lot of birthday parties, it's very elaborate affair. It has like all these decorations and everything. And Araceli's been working very hard, and she is the one who, well, she thinks she's going to answer the door. The first guest arrived and rang the doorbell 10 minutes early. A terribly rude North American habit, in Araceli's opinion. Rolling her eyes with exasperation, she left a stack of sopes waiting to be garnished with Oaxaca cheese in the kitchen and walked toward the finger that had set off the electric chimes, but stopped when two midget centurions with paper mache swords ran past her, the kids of the house. Brandon and Keenan raced to the door, holding their helmets atop their heads as they ran, and Araceli listened unamused as they stumbled over the lines their mother Marine had told them to recite. Friends, Romans, countries, Keenan began and then faltered until Brandon finished with, give us your ears. 
How cute, the early guests called out. Little Romans. When the second and third guests arrived at precisely the appointed hour, the boys were off playing with the children of the first guests, while Maureen and Scott were busy in the back, which left Araceli to open the door for the invitados. We're here for Keenan's party, an American woman with vaguely Asian features and a child and husband in tow tried to look past Araceli into the interior of the house, her expression suggesting she expected to see wondrous and magical things there. Si, adelante, Araceli said. But what she really wanted to say was, why do you people insist on treating an informal social gathering as if it were the launching of a rocket ship? Why do you arrive with a clock ticking in your head? How am I supposed to finish these sopes La Señora Marine wants if you keep ringing the doorbell? In Mexico, it was understood that when you invited people to a party at 1 o'clock, that meant the host would almost be ready at 1, and therefore the guests should arrive at their leisure at least an hour later. <laughs> Here, they do things differently. So that's Araceli. And um, I was really fortunate because I was writing this book while my kids were growing up and reading a lot. And so the kids became characters in the novel. They're not like my kids, these kids, but they do read a lot, which is something my kids uh, still do. They're still reading. They brought books to this uh, reading. <laughs> um, because they figured it would go on. <laughs> and they would be here for a while. So anyways, when my kids were reading books, I noticed, I, re I would read to them sometimes, I'd read over their shoulders, and young adult fiction is really filled with lots of violence and lots of politics, you know? And so I imagine this boy, who's not really like my kids, but he re he's read too much. He's essentially Don Quixote, right? Don Quixote has read too much and believes that all the things in his books are true. So... Um, this is one of the boys, and he's at the park, and he's alone with the maid. And the maid, Araceli, of course, and she doesn't really want to take care of them. Um, uh, but the parents are fighting, and so she's forced to go to this park. And so Brandon asks his brother something about one of his books. He says, they're in the park. He says, do you think the Russian mafia would ever come to Orange County? Brandon asked his brother, what? Keenan believed that his big brother read entirely too much, and he knew him to be an incessant confabulator, prone to confusing and scaring his younger brother with fantastic thoughts. At their very expensive private school, Brandon's big imagination caused him to run afoul of the otherwise laid-back teachers there, primarily because he had freaked out many of the girls with new and ever more elaborate versions of the Bloody Mary myth, causing them to avoid the girls' bathroom, with a handful of peeing-in-the-hallway incidents as a result. They're laughing because there are people spreading Bloody Mary myths at their school. <laughs> you know, Brandon insisted, like an Artemis fowl. Nah, Keenan said. It's too sunny here for the Russian Mafia. Brandon was still only 11 years old, and the morbid and fantastic imagery from his middle reader novels did not linger in his mind's eye for long. In less than a minute, he was running down the grass with his brother chasing after him. The reasons for their living room fight forgotten. They had just gotten in a fight in the living room. Araceli followed them down the slope of the park toward the rubber playmat and swings and took a seat on a bench facing the ocean. 
Brandon watched her as she looked off in the distance at a lone surfer tossing himself into the waves, the charcoal skin of his wetsuit swallowed up by the water, by water the color of the backwash in her mop bucket. Araceli was a major planet in Brandon's universe, and he studied her often as she shuffled around the Paseo Linda Bonita house. Sometimes he wondered if she was angry at him, if he had done something to upset her, because why else would someone be so quiet in his presence for so long? But after careful consideration of his actions, Brandon arrived. But after careful consideration of his actions, he was, in his own estimation, despite a few flaws, a good boy. Brandon arrived at the conclusion that Araceli was just lonely. And when he thought about her loneliness, he concluded that she should read more, because anyone who read was never alone. In books, there were limitless worlds. There was truth, sometimes brutal and ugly, and sometimes happy and soothing. So later, Brandon's tendency to read too much will get him into a little bit of trouble because he's going to see the real Los Angeles through the eyes of a child who's read too much. Um, but what happens in the novel is eventually there's this fight between the two parents, and Araceli is left alone with the kids. And I, uh, the idea behind the novel is that I would start in this home, and I would make a really, really sort of intimate description of what it's like to live in a home with help, because I have some experience with this when I lived in Latin America. We had people working in the home with us, living in the home with us. And I wanted to write an intimate description of that, and then I wanted to get these kids out of the neighborhood. I wanted to get them out into Los Angeles. I imagined this neighborhood in um, Orange County, overlooking the ocean. Um, it's uh, on a street that has those fake names. I don't know if you've ever seen driving down the Interstate 5 that there are all these like fake names you know, that they have. And so they live on Paseo Linda Bonita which Araceli remarks is not only grammatically incorrect, it's also a redundancy, right? So the Taurus Thompsons live in this beautiful million-dollar home with a garden in the back, and it's on Paseo Linda Bonita. And, um, and then suddenly the parents get in this horrible fight over money, and they uh, leave their separate ways, and Araceli is alone with the children, and she doesn't really like kids, and she has to think of what to do. And so this, this um, passage comes after the third day or so that she's alone with these two boys who she doesn't really like, she doesn't really like boys, but she has to take care of them, and she, this, this passage uh, comes from, uh, from her third or fourth day alone. Who could she call now? No one immediately came to mind. She did not know the neighbors, and it would be dangerous, she sensed, to share the secret of their isolation with strangers. She had no phone numbers for any uncles or aunts that might exist in the Torres Thompson universe. Scott, the father of the house, was an only child, and Maureen had a sister that Araceli had never met. As the hours passed and Scott and Maureen did not return, the strangeness of her predicament only grew. Araceli sensed, for the first time, a larger malaise, the consequence of one or more hidden family traumas at work, as in the convoluted narratives of a telenovela. The woman whose hair filled the brush, whose voice kept the boys bright-eyed, eager, and well-behaved, could not and should not have abandoned them. Araceli expected to hear the long-gated slapping of marine sandals on the saltillo tiles at any moment, but until then, there was no place she could walk to where Brandon and Keenan might be welcomed as relatives or friends. 
nor was the phone ringing with calls from the outside world with compadres and acquaintances calling into chat. In fact, the phone didn't ring very often at all. It seemed impossible to Araceli that a family and a home, that a family and a home could, be something, could become something akin to an island surrounded by vast stretches of salt water, and that its young inhabitants and their innocent housekeeper might become castaways. The peninsulas that linked this island of a home to a continent of annoying relatives and nosy neighbors had been quickly and definitively washed away. Araceli realized now that the daily solitude that she felt in this home, the oppression of the droning appliances and the people's views from the picture windows were not hers alone. This American family whose home she had inhabited had come to this hill above the ocean to live apart from the world. They are runaways like me. It was an obvious truth, but one Araceli had never fully pondered before. Among, Mexican, among Mexicans, the peculiar coldness of the Norte Americanos was legendary because it came to infect the many paisanos who live among them. One heard how individualism and the cult of work swallowed up the hours of the American day, how it swallowed up their sunsets and their springtimes, causing their family gatherings, their friendships, and their old people to disappear. But it was quite another thing to be thrust directly into an American family's lonely drama, to find her Mexicana self a player in their game of secrets and silences. Their separation from one another by long stretches of freeway, by time zones and airline hubs, and long distance phone rates. And what about the family patriarchs? She, not once had she heard Maureen speak of her father. There were no pictures of the man anywhere. Was he dead too, like Scott's mother? And if so, why was he not mourned with photographs? Or was he simply banished from the home like the boy's Mexican grandfather? So that's the situation that Araceli finds herself in. And so she goes to take these kids on a journey. And it's a journey that takes them into working class LA. And I will read um, this section. Uh, it's, she ends up first in 39th Street in South LA, and then she, they meet an orphan boy, and they have all sorts of adventures. And finally, they end up in Huntington Park. And Huntington Park to me is like the Brooklyn of Los Angeles. You know, it's like a working class place. It has like these really proud traditions and proud people. Not any, not, you know, outside of LA, people don't really know about Huntington Park, but really it is sort of the center of working class LA for me. And so they go to a party, and it's on the 4th of July. And that's why on the spine of my book, there is a 4th of July celebration. Because it's the 4th of July, and there's a 4th of July party going on. And now I want you to remember that first party that I had where I had all these really rich, well, not you know, upper middle class people coming to this really beautiful, sumptuous home in Orange County. And now I have another party, except it's a party of working class people. And it's a party in which um, the father of the house is uh, Mr. Luhan. He's in the city council in Huntington Park. And his daughter is there too, and she's back home from college. Her name is Lucia Luhan, and she is back from Princeton. Okay, but the main people at the party are all these paisanos of the Luhans, and so there's all these guys, you know, with the belt buckles, and they're all the girls that have you know ponytails in their hair, and it's like in Mexico where people really get their family dressed to go to a party, right? And so they're all there, and Araceli and the kids are there, and they're very, you know, it's very very strange to see Araceli there. So. Araceli was the deepest mystery to all the parents and older relatives present, some of whom were a bit put off when she entered their circle. 
They were all standing by the tables in their pyramids of pork and side dishes. She was about to plunge her fork into a serving of carnitas when she noticed she had inadvertently brought the conversation between all these compadres to a sudden halt. Buenas tardes, she said, eliciting a round of not especially friendly buenas tardes in return. Now, in Mexico, you can't enter an off a room without saying buenas tardes, and so that's why I put a buenas tardes in there, because I'd go to a barber shop and I'd sit down and people would say to me, buenas tardes. So she says, buenas tardes, and they're like, buenas tardes. So these mothers and fathers were put off too by Araceli's failure to pay much attention to the boys that she apparently was assigned to look after. Even when one of the older two boys approached and said with a stricken plea, I think someone should tell these kids to stop playing with firecrackers because it's so dangerous. Que quieres que haga? Araceli asked rhetorically because there was nothing she could do, and the boy snuck away, leaving all those who observed the exchange to wonder what exactly was going on here with this child unfriendly woman and those American boys. It's true what El Nino said, says, one of the moms said in Spanish. Those things are too dangerous. Someone is going to get burned. Ah, they see more dangerous things at school, believe me, said another mom dismissively. And with this, all the mothers and fathers in the circle nodded. The other day I go to pick up my son and the entire school is surrounded by police cars and police officers and there's what they call a lockdown. My son is in the sixth grade, believe it or not, and one of the kids is running down the hallway with a knife. I think he stabbed the teacher in the leg with it. Que barbaridad. The things that go on in those schools. My son is in the sixth grade too and he doesn't know his time stables past three, one of the fathers said. What's six times eight, I ask him. He looks at me all confused, so I tell him, what are they teaching there? And he says, I don't know. In my pueblo, they taught us that in the second year. What are we supposed to do, one of the mothers said. You're supposed to go to the teacher and complain, Lucia Lujan interjected in English. She's the one going to Princeton. Having just entered the circle on the, on the hunt for her own plate of food, you're supposed to go get in the face of that teacher and say, what's up with the times tables? ¿Podemos hacer eso? Of course you can. That's how this country works. That's how this country works. Get a classroom full of white kids, and that's what their parents do all the time. They treat every teacher like a worker. Tiene razón, Araceli said. La señora Morín, mi jefa, siempre está peleando con los maestros. But if we go, they don't take us seriously, one of the mothers said, speaking directly to Lucia. You go to the office and they tell us, what are you doing here? Go away, we're busy. They all paused, middle-aged and young, Mexican-born and U.S.-born, and considered the betrayal of the public schools and the steel mesh that covered every window, the security cameras in the hallways, the posted warnings aimed at student and adult alike. And a few of them, and a few of them very consciously, self-consciously allowed their eyes to drift over to those young girls and boys who were their blood and their responsibility. Running and bouncing in the backyard, each child gleaming and full of promise, and each poor and stripped of it. Boy and, girls, boy and girls' screams filled the silence that followed, which was heavy with hurt and powerlessness and a certain unfocused sense of working man's defiance that found no words in which it could be expressed. Araceli broke the wordlessness suddenly to say that the kids that she cared for seemed to be getting an excellent education. Where are they from? Los Laguna Rancho Estates, por la playa en los cerros. 
The public schools are good down there, I bet, Lucia Lujan said. No, van a la escuela pública, Araceli said. Private school, todo pagado y muy caro, very expensive. I see the bills. How much? Lucia Lujan asked quickly. Araceli spoke the figure of this tuition in slow and deliberate Spanish, allowing its mathematical obscenity it's thousands and thousands to hover over the assembled, hardworking, cash-strapped, tax-paying adults and scholarship-funded college students like a blinding glow of fake sunshine. There were one or two gasps, though Lucia Lujan's eyebrows rose with only moderate surprise. The tuition for those two boys together was a bit more than her tuition at Princeton before all the financial aid kicked in. Imposible, one of the parents said. Estás loca, said another. No sea chismosa, por favor. It was preposterous. And suddenly everyone in the circle except Lucia was angry at Araceli for revealing a figure that were they to accept it as truth, would temporarily strip them of some of their own moderately elevated sense of accomplishment by revealing just how small their achievements were relative to the true American success and affluence. The compadres with the kids in parochial school imagined they were paying top dollar. But in fact, it was a small fraction of the sum Araceli had just divulged, even though those gringo boys didn't look so much different than theirs, not especially special, and certainly not that rich. Es lo que cuesta, Araceli insisted. She explained that she knew this startling fact, not because she made any effort to find out, but rather because her employers were exceedingly casual with their paperwork and left letters and bills lying around. And with a dollar figure that big screaming from the kitchen countertop, even a normally circumspect housekeeper like Araceli had to take a look. You're pretty sure about that number, Lucia asked. Claro que sí, Araceli said. No, one of the comadres insisted. Estás confundida. I might just be a housekeeper and a chilanga, Araceli wanted to say, but I know basic English and math and the meaning of commas and decimal points and dollar signs. But instead, she just gave a long glance at her disbelieving audience, then shook her head with a dismissive chuckle that was instantly recognizable to Lucia for its thick layering of intellectual condescension. <laughs> so that's class struggle in Los Angeles. Now, I'll read one last section, and then I will uh, take any questions and sign some books, right? Um, and thank you all for coming again. And um, this section, uh, what happens in the novel is that Araceli is off with these boys, and she's taking them on this journey, and suddenly the parents return, they find she's no one's home, and Araceli is so, was in such a hurry to get rid of these boys, she doesn't even leave a note, and so there's all of this confusion. Finally, the police come to the house, and it's, they sort of come to believe that maybe this woman, Araceli, has kidnapped the children or something. And so, um, and so the news spreads uh, throughout uh, the city of LA. And so this is one moment in which I sort of take like a big lens and I, I think, what would happen in LA if suddenly there was a nanny or a housekeeper who was charged with hurting or possibly kidnapping one of the children. Because in LA, there are so many families like this, right? There are so many families who have someone in their home who's helping out, a Latin American woman who's working. What would happen if suddenly everybody could fear, start to fear, um, that 
this, that, that maybe that they could be a kidnapper. So the media spreads the word. And in those American homes where Mexican, Guatemalan, and Peruvian women actually worked, mothers and fathers digested this news and looked across their freshly dusted living rooms and tautly made beds and gave their hired help a closer look. They asked themselves questions that were usually suppressed because the answers were, in practice, unknowable. Where is this woman really from? And how much do I really know about her? Many of them were familiar with the superficial details of their employees' lives. The most empathetic among them had studied the photographs that arrived in the mail from places south. Little faraway images with Kodak imprinted acronistically on the back of wrinkled parents in village gardens of prickly pear cacti and drought-bleached corn, of children in used American clothing celebrating exotic, exotic holidays involving the burning of incense and parades with religious icons. The knowledge of that distant poverty provoked feelings of admiration, guilt, and mild revulsion in varying degrees, and also a sense of confusion. How can we live in such a big world where hooded sweatshirts and baby ballerina dresses circulate from north to south, from new to old, from those who pay retail to those who pay for their clothes by the pound? Now toss into this mystery a villain and the possibility of hidden peccadilloes and secret motives of revenge, and the result was a slight but noticeable uptick in the volume of phone calls in the greater Southern California region, as mothers in cubicles, mothers leading yoga sessions, mothers leading staff meetings, mothers at the Getty and the Huntington, at the Beverly Center and the Sherman Oaks Galleria looked away from their monitors and turned off their car radios and picked up car phones, excuse me, and picked up office phones and cell phones and called home just to check just to listen to the accented voices of their hired help, to see if they might hear an intonation suggesting deception, the verbal slip of the schemer. Everything okay? Todo bien? Si? Yes? Okay then. <laughs> when they returned home, they counted the items in their jewelry boxes, and some examined the arms and necks of their children for bruises, and a very few even asked their toddlers for the first time in weeks if Lupe and Maria and Soledad were really nice, or if they were ever mean, to which the most common responses were, what and que mami? So that's my novel, The Barbarian Nurseries. And I hope you enjoy it if you buy it and read it. Thank you. Does anybody have any questions? I know nobody's read this book, right? Except for, well, no, nobody's read this book here, right? <laughs> Uh, but uh, does it, yes, Jesse. Right.
you are now. Well, yeah, that's exactly what happened. I, um, I had this old manuscript that I wrote. And just to let you know how old this was, I have this paranoid thing that many writers have that I'm going to lose my copy of what I had written, right? And so now these days we keep copies on flash drives or we email them to each other and they're on servers somewhere in Palo Alto. They're stored so they never can be lost, right? Well, my, my backup copies of this novel I had in a safe deposit box for many years on floppy disks. <laughs> so when I went back to look at this stuff, it was like many, a lot of it was really, really painful to read because it was, um, I wanted to write a political novel and it was very, it was, it was like a screed, you know, my original agent, Ginger Barber, is this old southern woman, wonderful agent, Alice Munro's agent, and she said, Hector, technically this is a really good novel, but really it's a little bit, you know, too, it's too much of a polemic, that's the word she used, a political argument, a polemic. And, you know, I was really stubborn, certain really intelligent people told me that maybe it didn't really work and I sort of didn't listen to them. But then when I went back to it, I, I, I saved maybe of the original manuscript, I saved maybe two or three percent. And those are the parts that needed the most work, really, um, because I had developed this whole other voice. And you know, they say writing is rewriting and that's true for the writing life in general. If you have live a writing life, and you are constantly revising, you become another writer. And so that happened to me. I became another writer because I had become a father. I had washed many, many dishes, you know, and uh, I can't tell you how many times I was washing dishes and ideas for passages came to me. I had to dry my hands off and go look for a napkin or something to write an idea. And I remember I finished this manuscript. I gave it to my agent uh, and, you know, and finally we sold it. And I was going through the editing process with my editor at... Um, Sean McDonald's a really great guy. And uh, he said, uh, we we're finishing up, and we had done like the third or fourth revision, you know, of, uh, of the manuscript I gave him. And he said, you know, Hector, there's just one passage that's really, the truth, this is really the only passage in the book I don't like. <laughs> and it was one of the ones that I had sort of left over from before. And so I think um, I learned a lot about life in the process of writing this book and in the process of living. You know, and I, I tell my wife, Virginia, she really, really taught me a lot about home. And that's a lot of what this book is about. It's about home and parenthood and childhood. And then, of course, the political nature of, of it, because it's a social divide that we have very often in our homes. Even if we don't have hired help in the home, we have someone who might do an addition to our house. That person very often is someone who uh, comes from Latin America, someone who's working on a temporary basis, someone who's the cousin. And you talk to people and you find out after 10 minutes he's the cousin of such and such. Or someone might come to your house and say, well, you know, I have a, my cousin who's here and could you give him a job too? You know, that kind of thing. And so we lived every day the social divide. And I, I was not really very mature about it. So I, it took me a long time to learn how to write that way. And I read a lot, a lot of Chekhov, a lot of Cheever, um, a lot of Alice Munro. And I just was very patient with it. And I think in the end, that's what I needed. I needed to be patient. I needed not to rush it. So, other question? Um, how does it go between writing, journalistic writing, and fiction Well, I think that the two things really play off of each other in interesting ways. I think that, um, that, uh, that being a novelist or being someone who wants to write creatively gives you an eye for detail that maybe uh, it's a muscle that you're ordinarily as a journalist not really trained to use. So for example, when I go places very often I'm looking at the surroundings and I'm looking for the elements um, uh, that I can use to build a scene. 
And that helps me in my journalism as a columnist. Um, so, for example, you know, I, I'm looking at this space for the first time, and I, I'd, I'd want to, I'd ask somebody, what kind of tree is this, you know, that we have in the center of the room? How can I describe the ceiling, or what metaphor can I come from describing the, the arc of the ceiling? And those muscles as a novelist really, really helped me as a journalist. And what helps me as a journalist to be a novelist is that um, I am constantly interviewing people. And I'm constantly talking to people, and I'm constantly exposed to the great surprise of the human experience. Because no matter what you think you're going to find when you go someplace, you always find something a little bit different or strange or unique. And I think that's infused my book. It has, it's very, very rich in detail. Um, it's sort of a risky thing to do as a writer these days, because everyone's sort of used to things being so fast. But, um, but that sort of um, lush truth that you come upon as a witness. When you're a witness to something, you see details, you see emotions. And that has really, really helped uh, my, my, my work as a novelist. There are actually specific scenes that I wrote where I went and I stage directed it. I have a couple of theater people here, you know. I, I decided that I'm going to write a scene. I need to go get the actors, right? So I'll wander through the streets of Huntington Park or LA, and I'll see a scene or something, and that will become an element of my prose. It's prose. It's, it's a one-dimensional stage. But I, they're my actors, and I'm moving them around, and I'm giving them dialogue and stuff. And a lot of that comes from my research, from going out into the street. I went to Huntington Park. I did a whole sort of section about silence in L.A., in Huntington Park. And I realized uh, I, needed, I needed something to fill the silence, and I heard all these birds one morning. And I and I, I said, okay, I want to have these bird sounds, but um, what are they? And so I called, I'm a columnist, I know like tons and tons of people in LA, so I happen to know the leading bird expert in Los Angeles County. Uh, and he's at the LA County you know, Museum of Natural History, so I called him up and I said, hey, you know, uh, I, I'm not calling as a novelist, not, you know. I have a scene, it's Center Huntington Park in the summer, and I want to know at six in the morning, what kind of birds would I hear? He says, give me about half an hour, I'll get right back to you. And he, half an hour later, he sends me a list of like 40 birds, because he said, hey Hector, I, I didn't tell you this, but we just finished the Los Angeles County Bird Atlas. We're still sort of editing it, it's kind of taking us a while because we're all bird people, you know, we're not really word people. But we've been working on it, and I, I sent you the grid, from the grid for Huntington Park, I sent you all the sightings, because they send people out to go observe the birds. There's a long neck stilt, you know, write it down, you know? and. <laughs> Yeah, woodpecker. And so I was able to get like, you know, and then I studied, you know, like they, they've seen a certain kind of woodpecker. And so this woodpecker, it turns out, um, he nests inside a telephone pole. And so all of that is in my, you know, is in that section. And it's a little riff on silence. And that, that is my reporting instinct. But when you find things like that, they're like so precious and so unique that they, they really make your prose feel real. Because they are real. So thank you. Uh, yes. You just read the end of the book? <laughs> That's okay. Michael Silverblatt on KCRW gave away the ending of the book, you know? I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Except he didn't quite, he kind of like, it's not quite, but anyways. Will you consider writing a sequel to the book? No. Because, as I explained to Michael Silverblatt on a bookworm, where all the serious writers go. Listen to Michael. Listen to Michael give his monologues. Like, you know, eventually there's a question there, right? But I'm sorry. <laughs> he's, he's a real character. Um, as I explained to Michael, uh, 
the ending of the book, uh, it's like uh, there, Araceli has a decision to make. And it's like at that point, she's no longer, I felt like I arrived at the point where she no longer is my creation. You know, I've like created her and have her do all these things. And she's become so, to me, so incredibly real, you know, because I've spent many, many years with her. That at that point, though, she's off and she has her own life. She is actual, an actual real creation out there. So she is deciding what she does. And I can't, I can say, good luck, Caraselli, wherever you're going. <laughs> so no, I would never write. Yeah, that's a strange question to get at your first reading. <laughs> but thank you for asking. Yes. Yeah, I was curious about the, this is we're talking about the names. In the 19th century, the early 20th century, had a lot of European names in this country, like Irish, Italians, Germans. Mm -hmm. I was just curious about that. Uh, Chinese, you know, what I'm talking about. Yeah, I think that there is um, a, a many layered history of uh, domestic work in this city and country. And I tried to pay a little bit of an homage to that, not so much in the whole nanny thing, but in the geography of the city. When they undertake the journey, as you will discover if you read it, they come into old LA. And when you come to old LA, and I'm thinking of the uh, area within like maybe three or four miles of uh, the Arroyo Seco, you know, or of Central and uh, 15th Street, that whole area is, um, has so many layers of history. South LA, for example, where they end up, they meet somebody who's from South LA at the, at the uh, information booth. And he remembers when the part of South LA when it was a so Southern European, Italian, Greek neighborhood, right? Later they meet a person who is one of the last remaining members on that block of the great African-American families that had established themselves there. And he remembers the history of Central Avenue, of that part of South Central, as a majority black neighborhood. And then they also have all these layers of Chinese and Japanese history that are sort of in the novel. And so for me, that's my way of acknowledging that. It's like, for me, Ameri there's constants in American history. Um, and there's a constant that we, our democracy is based on these very, very strong inequalities, right? So there always are, even though we have this um, wonderful structure of, of equality, underneath it, there was for many, many years, right, um, there was you know, black people did not have full citizenship in this country, right? And now we have millions of people of Latin American descent who don't have any citizenship rights because they weren't born here, right? They were born, they came when they were two or three years old and they've lived here 20 years. I mean, that happens now. There are people who lived here 20 years, 25 years, graduate from law school, you know, in the United States, and yet um, have no, uh, no chance of becoming citizens because they're undocumented people. And so for me, that's a constant. And the end of the novel also harkens back to that. It harkens back to the United States of Huckleberry Finn, for example, you know, and Jim and Huck on the, on the raft. Um, and that's the most I'll say about that. But yes, that was my way of acknowledging that. Um, another question? There? I can't really stop ever writing. Um, that's my that's my great uh, uh, thing that I impose on my family. But I, I do have a project I'm working on, a nonfiction project uh, that I got because I wrote this novel. Um, because I wrote this novel and it sold. I mean, it sold to this really respected house. And so because of that, I got uh, a, a contract to write a book about the Chilean miners.
So I've been going to Chile, and I'm, that's what I'm working on right now. And then I have an idea for another nonfiction project. And for I would like to write, though, uh, in my sunset years, um, a series of novels about LA history and about uh, a love affair romance in Los Angeles across across the ages. So yeah, that's what I'm working on. But uh, like many of us, yes. Um, so earlier, when you mentioned uh, a few of the writers who you've been sort of read as inspiration, you mentioned uh, Chekhov, Cheever, Alice Munro, who all are sort of known as short story writers. And I'm curious whether you've ever written short fiction or whether that's a form that you've ever been drawn to. Well, um, I've written one short story in my life that's been published, and um, and that's actually why I started working on the novel. I was asked to write a short story by my friend Denise Hamilton uh, for this collection, L.A. Noir, and I hadn't written fiction in years. And so when she asked me to write this story, I took an old, old story that uh, was inspired uh, in part by uh, uh, someone who's in this room right now. And uh, and I, I took that short story and I published it in that book, and I thought, oh, writing fiction is so much fun, and so that's why I started working on my novel. And um, but yeah, sh but I, I like short fiction. I like Chekhov and I like Cheever because I felt like I was studying how prose works, uh, how prose works um, in exploring emotional spaces. That's really what I needed to learn, you know. And I needed to be slow and I needed to be patient about it. And so I studied. I read a lot um, for the for the for the just for how to move in tight spaces. I felt like I all my life I had been someone who's working on news stories, right, which is like burning cars and crashing airplanes and falling governments and falling pesos and everything, you know? And so I, I knew I knew I could handle all of that. Like I could handle the world where of politics, the mayor of LA is in my novel and his political consultant is in my novel. But I, uh, I, how could I really handle what it's like to raise a baby? You know, could I really write about that? Could I write about what it's like to be in a relationship that is um, stressed out because of money? And my real inspiration there was uh, The Cherry Orchard, which is a great work of theater, and just also a very tender, funny play. And I tried to sort of tap, this family is going through economic collapse, but I didn't want it to be sad. I wanted it to be sort of tender and funny, and so that's what I was shooting for. So Chekhov was a great inspiration for that. Yes, Dante. Well, um, I, I know you really love the last line in the, the book, after that's a really great question. Um, I had that last line in my head for maybe two or three years before I finished the book and before I got to the end. And so I was working towards that last line uh, for a long time. Yeah, for a long time, and it was uh, it was really comforting to have that. It's sort of like the light at the end of the tunnel, you know. And it's funny because now I have to write. You know, nine little nine hundred word things for the LA Times, and very often I don't really get the last line until the very last thing. But it, it's always easier when you have the last, the ending first. But yeah, and it's about just without giving it away. It's sort of this notion of us as people of Latin American descent, many of us, sort of being between two identities and two cultures, and that's that's the notion that's behind uh, that, and that's who Araceli is. Araceli is a person who. Um, has been changed. She, you will notice in the novel she has been grat. She's a Chilanga, which is a resident of Mexico City, a native of Mexico City. She's very proud of where she is. We lived in Mexico City for three years, my family and I. Mexico City is an amazing, amazing city. And it's also like 
a really odd cousin of LA. You know, there are times you're walking down the street in Mexico City or in some place like in Nesawakoyatl and you go, hey, I know that guy. He's lives at, he's like looks like the guy I know from El Mani, you know? <laughs> and so uh, Mexico City in LA, Mexico City is this character in my book. And so Araceli is really proud of being from Mexico City and there are passages here that are about Mexico City. But at the same time, she's come to the United States and there's something about living in this ama amazing city or living with an American family. And I could see this too in our home that you could see every once in a while we had somebody working for us who was like really looking at us and it's like, okay, you're Latino people and you're kind of successful. What's your secret? What are, they, what are you doing? Yeah, okay, yeah, I can see. You know, and sort of there's you know studying and sort of seeing, and sometimes there's like this disbelief. Like my wife had the great honor of becoming a PhD when we lived in Mexico City, and there were these a uh, couple of women who worked for us. I can say that now because we're not on, on you know national radio or anything, so I will talk about this. And you know, it was like I, we had this woman who worked for us, and you know, Virginia was working for ages and ages on her on her dissertation and she had stacks of paper everywhere and books, stacks of books that were like, some of them were like almost 100 years old and she's looking through them and revising and she's got her glasses on and red pens all over the place and this lady is all cleaning around us and helping out and, you know, and everything and talking to us and um, I said, you know, my wife is going to get her PhD. I says, oh really? You know, and she's like, it didn't register. It didn't register to her and, and she didn't quite believe, you know, that a woman who, you know, can make of Mexican descent could go like because you know we, she was like us you know and it didn't register her the woman uh, you know could go and actually become a, a doctor until finally we went off to Arizona State to get Virginia's PhD and we came home and um, and I, I made a sign that said you know felicidades doctora you know and I showed uh, Maria Isabel a uh, picture of Virginia in her cap and gown with our kids and everything and she says finally it hit her and she says ay senor I really wish I could have studied right which is this painful thing to hear you know because this woman is extremely intelligent a really amazing observer of, um, of, of, of a home of the family around her and yet she didn't have that chance to study and it's so true I mean another woman who worked for us um, she was working to send her little brother through law school, right? And um, so there's this amazing social divide that we got to witness, and that's part of what's you know in the book. And there's and one last thing is that if you do read it, there's one scene where there are, Araceli goes to the park, and there's all these women with their kids that they're taking care of, their nannies. They really are nannies. Araceli is just a housekeeper who happens to be taking care of two kids. But um, the names of all the women who are in that Park are the names of women who all worked for us in our home, right? Different because we lived many years abroad, seven years abroad, in different countries, different cities, different homes, and so there. The names of all of them are uh, are women who worked for us because we really got to know. And there's the one story that um, that's in there. There's a story about uh, something that happens where a woman is telling a story about she was in a house where the Lady, the old lady she worked for died, and she was left with the corpse. That's a story that I listened to from Maria Isabel, you know, trying to distract Maria Isabel so she would keep from talking to Virginia, who had to concentrate because she had to write, you know, you know. See, senor, and I remembered. So. <laughs> so, one last question. One last question. Anybody at all? Last question. Anyone? Um, well, so thank you all for coming, and please, I'll be signing any books if anyone wants to buy one. And thank you so much for coming. Muchas gracias.
You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.